0: Welcome to Dear Asian Americans, this is your host Jerry Wan, and foremost, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. It is January 5th, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome you to our 91st episode with producer and former news anchor, Connie Lee. Connie's had a really great story of uh, growing up in the States, but also having worked in Asia uh, for a television studio in Korea. And and now she's back producing uh, content from an Asian perspective here back in the States and DC. So really excited to share her story with you. I, I wish everybody health and happiness as we always do, but in particular in 2021, as we've moved on from what many have considered the worst year ever, or certainly yet a very challenging year, I I do want to ask everybody to think about what we've collectively learned and continue to struggle with. Obviously, COVID is still here. The vaccine rollout is relatively slow. We are on the cusp of a presidential change. Um, If you're hearing this when it's airing, the Senate elections in Georgia are happening right now. That can really determine um, what the fate of our country and the world could look like um, starting in a couple of weeks with the inauguration. But I, I don't, I, I'd be remiss not to remind everybody to make sure that we are living 2021 based on the lessons of 2020. Just because the calendar has changed, just because we're technically in a new year, doesn't mean that everything is just going to get better all of a sudden. Uh, what are you doing in your day to day life? What changes have you made? What conversations are you having? But also importantly, what are you no longer having? What are we encouraging each other to do? What are we uh, doing to make sure that we? Can build upon the lessons and to make 2021 a year that will really build upon uh, the foundations and, and move us forward. And in whatever that may mean for you, uh, perhaps you're a, s- a student in school finishing out and uh, hopeful about what the future is. Uh, perhaps 2020 has given you the most amount of time you've been able to spend with your kids, um, as it has been the case for me uh, since your kids have been born, because we've gotten now used to a, a new uh, reality. And so I wish everybody all the health, all the happiness uh, in the world as we, as we navigate 2021 together. If you need someone to talk to, if you want to share a story with us, uh, please do reach out. The inbox is always open. It's hello at com, or you can find us at Americans on Instagram. Join us in our Facebook group where we talk about a lot of great stuff. Join us on the Asian Podcast Network where We have over 750 amazing uh, community members talking about podcasting from an Asian perspective. Uh, But don't go through this alone. I know a lot of people are struggling right now and COVID cases are spiking uh, in many parts of the world, particularly here where I am in Los Angeles. So um, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Whether today is your first time listening to Connie's story or whether this is your 91st episode and you have joined us for every single conversation uh, thank you. Thank you from the uh, deepest bottom of my heart. And on behalf of uh, our family and the entire team here at Just Like Media, I thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this conversation with Connie J. Lee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. And as we get ready to celebrate the year end holidays and as we think about what 2020 has meant for all of us, we wish you all the health and happiness in the world. It has been a challenging year. And if Unless something drastic has happened, and by that I mean everybody has decided to wear a mask and everybody has decided to stop seeing friends, we still are in a pandemic. And so I hope that wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this, that you're staying safe primarily, and that the people that you care about and the people that you cherish in life are also being safe and also being happy. You know, storytelling in the Asian American space has been an interesting one. Uh, we primarily focus on our experience of having become American. Whether through immigration or through becoming a refugee or through birth, very few of us get to go back to Asia and to tell our stories in our more most comfortable tongue, in English, to an Asian audience or to, or about Asian stories, and then to come back here um, as our guest today, Connie has done, and to work for an Asian broadcasting company, which infuses all of Asian American storytelling. So. Really excited uh, to share this conversation with my friend, Connie Lee, who is currently a producer and a reporter at CGTN TV. And most recently, uh, her finished her documentary called Asian and American, where she talked to amazing, amazing Asian Americans. So really excited to learn about her story and to learn about her storytelling journey. So, hey, Connie, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me.
0: I I am so excited to talk to you. Um, I get excited to talk to particularly other storytellers because I think especially the ones that have gotten comfortable in the Asian American storytelling space, or just have accepted our responsibility that we need to be telling our own stories, lest it be colonized by somebody else to tell. Um, because there's really no more excuse for that. Uh, we have the talent and the capability. I mean for you to have gone back to Asia and to worked in Seoul for five years to tell stories, you know, at Adidang TV, that is a predominant, there's a English first language, English language first broadcasting company um, sharing our stories really, really fascinating. To learn all about Connie, I want to roll the tape back and learn about the Lee family a little bit more. Um, How did your family become Korean American? When did uh, you guys move here and what circumstance and uh, where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, so let's take it way back to, I guess, uh, the late 70s. That's when my parents immigrated from Seoul to Illinois, the suburbs of Chicago. So, you know, the typical immigrant story, my parents wanted um, a better future for their children, their offspring. And so my grandparents actually immigrated first to Chicago with my great uncle, my uncle, and then my dad wanted to follow suit. And so my parents actually met uh, working in Seoul together, um, but they felt like they could um, have more opportunities in America. So they came in the late 70s, So I was born in the suburbs of Chicago, and it was a very white neighborhood. Um, I don't think I realized how white it was until later on, but um, my older brother, who was actually born in Seoul, he came here when he was one. Um, He remembers very vividly uh, being surrounded by white classmates, uh, no Asian neighborhoods, um, and... The only asian people that my family saw were was people at church um who were also <laughs> immigrants mm-hmm. so their knowledge of what life is really like in america was very limited um and they didn't have a lot of um, resources to get information about you know how to you know join the PTA even at schools right. so yeah that's how it started for my parents
0: i, I think Asian American, and in particular Korean immigrants who go to Chicago, from my outside observation, it's a fascinating case study because if you look at other cities like Los Angeles, where I grew up in the suburbs, or New York City, there are massive core centers of Korean culture. But in Chicago, just like the city sprawls out from the lake, the Korean community also sort of sprawls out, and economic Mm -hmm. opportunity was the primary driver there, and it wasn't necessarily centralized community building. Um, even today for as big of a city as Chicago is, there really isn't a thriving or robust Korean commerce district. Sure. There's some H marts here and restaurants, but like you don't have that Korea town as you do Mm. even in parts like Atlanta or Dallas even. So I think for, you know, a lot of Korean American friends who've grown up in the Chicago area, it's a different one from the one their youth was something that was different because, um, there wasn't like I grew up in Fullerton, like they sent letters home in Korean. Like that was, yeah. you know, it wasn't America as far as, you know, um, yeah. other people would have seen yeah. it. And, and and so how did that shape what you wanted to do in life? What were some of your earlier influences that you always know you wanted to be a media person?
1: Yeah, you know, so I didn't realize this until I got older, but I think my, uh, my desire to work in media uh, definitely stems from my immigrant um, family experience. And I think, like I said you know my parents they came here and fortunately my dad was able to get like an american corporate job um working for a big candy company but beyond that they their knowledge of what's happening in this world politics uh different community initiatives it was very limited right um there weren't resources available for uh, you know immigrant families and so i think from a young age you know at first i wanted to become a teacher because I love the idea of being able to educate to inform to teach, um, and then, as I got older, I, you know I thought like, why not expand my reach right like not you know not influence not only influence like a classroom of like twenty people, but with media t v right you can influence the masses, and so I think um just seeing you know how we grew up, like I wanted to inform people because. You know, first of all, a lot of people live in ignorance, and um, that can be a problem. And I didn't want people to miss out, basically, right? Um, and so, yeah, my my desires to want to inform people and educate um, turned from like wanting to be a teacher and then wanting to be a journalist and you know reach the masses. So that's how it all kind of like started.
0: I think you know the the term influencer has taken. meaning of its own and um, has has sort of taken on this uh a a tone or connotation of of ridicule and and whatnot unfortunately over the last few years but that's what you are you know even when you're whether you're a teacher or whether you're a community leader or whether you are a storyteller you aim to influence the way that somebody thinks Mm -hmm. marketers influence the way that people spend their money and spend their time and so there's, there's no shame in that word i think in saying that you want to be an influencer now now the big question is whom do you want to influence and in what direction which i think then we start talking about what are some of the experiences in your life that you know you felt was lacking and and so share with us what, what was there a time that you felt that your story or and any story wasn't being told the way that you hoped that it would that you n- knew that it needed to be told where you felt you needed to step in
1: yeah i think the whole idea of you know, growing up as a minority, right um, I think you know everyone has their own journey story, right, their own struggles, but growing up in within an immigrant family, you have different hurdles and obstacles, and people have biases, and I feel like you um people can't really understand that kind of feeling unless you've been in those shoes right and um and i think just um just being culturally aware i think growing up i felt like that was missing um mm. for instance like you know when i was in school there would be like like a chinese word or like a japanese word but you know all my american friends would just think it's the same it's an asian language right um even that you know that really bothered me cuz i recognized that we're not all the same right as much as i wanted to be um, just like my classmates, you know, I knew I wasn't the same. And just how I live, how my family lives, you know, we grind, right? We grind and we hustle. And that's, um, that's a very different lifestyle and upbringing from um, my American peers who have like, who have roots in America for like generations. And so I think just, um, just a story of like, people's, individual journeys. I think I didn't see anyone or it was hard for me to relate to people because we didn't have the same upbringing.
0: The A word is one that I think we all used to believe in and I don't certainly believe it anymore and that um, bad A word is assimilation. We were told, um, I, I think our parents and many of our parents still don't necessarily see themselves as American They see themselves as Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese in America, which is a completely different identification. Mm. And so they wanted us to fit in to their culture without having a clear understanding of what American academia or corporate life was. A lot of us were told to be great and go to the best American school and work for a big American company, which means that we were unconsciously trained to fit into what was expected of us, which somewhat meant that we had to compromise our identity without knowing it to fit mm-hmm. in. And I think I, I hear that in your story a little bit too, where we and when you're a kid, like you just desperately want to fit in. You don't want to be the only one weird or, you know, you know, like I wasn't born Jerry, right? Like, mm-hmm. but my parents gave me an English name so that I in their mind, in their well intentioned mind, like it would be easy I would have an easier life being Jerry than Jong in this country. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what the other would have been, but I've been Jerry since I was eight. So there's that, right? So I I think that's a really fascinating point that you bring up that we all have our ways and we all have our moments where we just feel like feeling acceptance. And now I think hopefully we are talking about acceptance on the other end of the Asian American spectrum where we can talk about our identity, not as Asian or American, um, but as, you know, uh, something that's uniquely special because I can't ever go back to Korea and expect to be treated like a local Mm -hmm. I've been back and they don't treat me like a local. Um, and I live here and I don't really get treated like I belong here too at all times. Right. And, and so tell me about that. Like coming out of college, did you know that you wanted to go back to Asia and work there and then tell us about your, the earlier parts of your, your, your broadcasting journey?
1: yeah, so I knew in college I wanted to work in media in what form or shape I wasn't sure. And so I had a whole ton of internships uh, with different media companies, and I think that was very helpful for me to get um, kind of a glimpse into the media world. So I worked in the business aspect of a media company, the marketing aspect, um and then I went into a newsroom, uh, which kind of happened. I met someone, a recruiter who was at um one like networking event that I went to right after college. And um, and she was like, hey, we have an opening right now. It's like a production assistant. And it's, you know, it's the bottom of the totem pole of the newsroom. But I felt like, you know, maybe this is my chance to hone my communication skills. Because uh, that's, I think I realized in college, in whatever field you're in, Uh, Being a great communicator is such a valuable um, skill to have. And Mm -hmm. so I figured, you know what, like being in a newsroom can help me hone my verbal and speaking skills. So I think this would be a great job. Um, The pay was very minimal. (laughs) Um, And right before then, though, I did have have an internship in marketing. And Mm -hmm. it was great. Um, the pay was nice and my dad obviously liked that position more than a position in a newsroom where your start time was at 3am, um, and weekends were also like a work day. Right. Um, but I knew I wanted to do something different and my parents also knew I'm not the type to be able to sit in an office nine to five and just listen to what people tell me to do. Um, And so, yeah, so I fell into a newsroom in a rather big market in DC. Uh, So that was my first newsroom job. And I really liked it. Like you had a lot of control and what stories you can tell, right? Um, Yes, there are those major headlines, right? But then all the other stories, you kind of pick and choose, right? And you kind of you can shape the narrative and shape discussions that people will have. Um so I really I really kind of got addicted to that uh, mm. that power, I guess, to really uh, tell people like, um, not how to think but to actually think about certain topics. Mm. And um yeah, so I worked in a local ABC newsroom in DC. And, um, the hours, the pay were not the best, (laughs) um, but, you know, I enjoyed it and I knew that this was something that I can do, you know, in my early twenties, um, and do while you're single. Right. And so, um, yeah, that's how I got started. And then.
0: I I think that's fascinating because when when you mentioned something that you saw early on, that communication was going to be an invaluable mm -hmm. skill, most college students don't think that, They think generally about hard skills. What can I go or, you know, they take what what does it pay, you know, more or, you know, engineering or business minded students would focus on what are jobs, what are hard skills that I can learn to get the job that would pay me to do that. You know, we've had other media folks here on the show, namely, I think, our mutual friend, Jessica Chen, um, who also went down that path of realizing that pretty early on and really recognizing that those are skills that are a lifetime. Everybody realizes that at some point, whether it is through some feedback or realizing that there's a gap in your skill set that is a soft skill that weren't that you can't like master from a textbook but I think kudos to you for figuring that out early and like resonating with people and communicating and and then really storytelling which is um, again influencing the viewer on again not how to think but hey, there's this other thing that you may not have been, you know, aware of. So you, you left, while you were there, we, we hear a lot, of, at least, you know, um, in 2020 of local news stations, national news stations, not being a very diverse place. Uh, we, we know that. How did you feel? And, and this was, you know, 10 plus years ago, you know, was there, did you feel that you are empowered to tell stories that you wanted to in the way that you wanted to, because unfortunately we still hear stories of stories or yeah, stories of people not being able to report on certain things, or they wanted to focus on one thing or another. So for example, you know, anytime there's been a national COVID case in March, April, and May, they always sort of happen to find like pictures of Asian people wearing masks and, you know, that influences probably more than the entire article itself when you, right, you know, so how, how did you feel about that? And I guess, you know, having the perspective of having worked in Asia and now back here, like, did you think, how do you think about those couple of years that you were at ABC in DC?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I was actually shocked in my first newsroom job because I was in DC and the lack of awareness of different cultures Um, I was very surprised and stunned because as, you know, a newly recent graduate, you know, you have, you know, you have like sparkles in your eyes and you're very hopeful for the real world. And then you go there and there is a lot of ignorance, right? And I was one of two Asian people in the newsroom and the other Asian um, colleague, she would also express the same things like with any stories related to Asia, they would Everyone will ask either one of us. Ah. Um, so, for instance, like, you know, we had the panda at the Washington Zoo from China, right? And so I remember, distinctly remember a panda cub was born. And I think the name was like Bao, Bao, like very simple, right? Just phonetically, just say it. But I remember this one anchor, she like ran to me and was like, How do you say this name? How do you say your name? And I was like, I was like, bow, bow, like it spells, you know. And even like things like that, it it did irk me and it it was very disappointing because these were like highly educated people and who've been in the workforce for many, many years, but still their knowledge of Asia was very limited. And uh I got an offer, a job offer to work in Seoul. Uh, right after my newsroom experience in dc and i remember when i told people i'm going to move to seoul i'm going to move to korea right i'm going to move to korea and believe it or not you might understand but a lot of people asked you can, you can kind of guess what they asked right they're, oh, like, my goodness. Like, they're like we're in korea north or south and this was merely just like 10-ish years ago it's not that long sure ago.
0: Right. I mean, but this that's is
1: like Greek style. Yeah,
0: but but that's also like, Connie, that's like Family Guy stuff, right? Like they make fun of this very thing on Family Guy where they like yeah. have a dedicated Asian correspondent. Like that's insane. And it's FNDC of all places where I know, I know. it should be representative America. And yeah. at least, like, that's where right. foreign dignitaries live. That's where, you know, like world decisions are made. Yeah, it's really unfortunate to hear, but I I do, and then here's the underlying I guess thing that we, you know, I was so excited to talk to you about because we were talking before we started recording just how not diverse storytelling as an industry is even today.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who are those newsroom producers? Who greenlights book deals? Who mm-hmm. signs and buys Netflix TV shows? Not anybody that looks like a whole lot of us, right? So. Mm-hmm. Where can we find our spaces where we can tell our stories, where we can control the narrative? I think is critically important, and as people listen to us and think about where your stories are being told and and what validation you need for your story to matter, what will we'll cut to the chase like it's you're the only judge, you don't need mm-hmm. anybody else to tell you that your story matters, you know tangentially, um you know over the weekend, I think the Grammys finalists were announced and the rapper weekend was snubbed and wasn't you know, nominated for anything. And he went on this whole thing about like, screw you, I deserve better, yada, yada, yada. And then subsequently I watched an interview with um, uh, Charlemagne from the Breakfast Club and he was being interviewed on CNN. And it was basically like, why do we continually as black rap artists need, feel the need to be validated by what in essence is a room full of white people giving out awards to musicians? that's not meant for them, right? Like I don't think the weekend or anybody else like makes music so that they can get validated by the Grammy nomination committee.
1: Yeah.
0: I understand that when you have something as highly coveted as a Grammy, and that is the gold standard in your industry, that that's what you want, but we are so conditioned. So even somebody who is as authentic as the weekend may be, think about how hard it is for everybody else, where Mm -hmm. if you don't see it, right? Like, I never thought I could ever write a book because I'm like, who, what What publisher is going to green light my book? And now we're exploring ways of self-publishing our own stories. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't need anybody's permission to start this podcast. And here we are like almost a year later. And, and that I think is, is the great takeaway. That's yes. You had a crappy experience with the, the um, subtle slash pseudo Panda racism, which is really <laughs> unfortunate and not people understanding that like,
1: True story.
0: (laughs) It's crazy. Um, But anyway, um, obviously, if if people listen to the show, they know I get fired up about this stuff. And I'm glad you made the best of it. But tell us about your experience, you know, working for an English broadcast company in, in Seoul. Were you sharing American companies, I'm sorry, American stories or global stories to a Korean audience? Or how did that work? Because many people might not understand how an English speaking media company in Seoul who their audience is and what type of stories that they're reporting on.
1: Yeah, so when I worked at Arirang TV, their audience was a little bit, there was no clear target audience, right? Uh, When I worked for a local newsroom in D.C., we had a very clear, you know, target audience, right, for ratings and whatnot. But in Korea, so what I've been told was foreigners who are interested in Korea or Asia or like the Korean-American diaspora in living in Korea. So that was the audience. So, um, but it was interesting because when I moved to Korea, I had sort of like a reverse culture shock, right? (laughs) And so um, people would see me and they can notice right away that I'm not a native Korean, right? But because I am still Asian and I, I am Korean, they expect certain things of me that are more Korean rather than being more westernized. And so they could, you know, I could have come into the newsroom with, you know, like blonde hair and blue eyes because I was born and raised in America. But because I'm not, you know, the expectations were very different. I think when I first entered the newsroom, you know, they expected me to go around and yinza or bow, right? Yeah. And for me, it's like, hey, I'm the new kid here. Why don't you say hi to me? I don't know who you are. Introduce yourself to me um but it was reverse in korea and i think in america i was trained um, i think just working and having jobs you know i was trained to be very direct and to speak up for myself and be very independent and strong headed because people already saw me as a young girl cuz you know asian don't reason like we just look yeah. younger than our peers and so people just saw me as someone who's very green Uh, who's not very experienced and so I had to like work against that I had to prove myself that I'm not that right so Mm. I had to be extra like aggressive or I had to be even more direct but then in Korea I had to kind of like flip that um, and you know tone it down a little bit Um, but with storytelling you know it's basically universal right a good story is a good story and Think what was unique about Arirang TV was they were rebranding themselves during that time when I entered. So they were actually trying to be more uh, Western-friendly um, mm-hmm. with the looks, the studio, the presentation style, and so they wanted more the Western influence versus the Korean influence and the way that Koreans present stories and they how they anchor is very. Uh, stiff even till this day yeah. it's very st- yeah. stiff um just straight to the news and even your expressions has to be like very neutral you're not supposed to
0: smile it's weird you don't smile. No, you
1: don't smile you know you just like grin right you're,
0: you're very robotic your in nature yeah, yeah.
1: but i tv they were more i guess um they were more korean um they had more of the korean influence but when i went um in 20- 11 they were trying to become uh more westernized and so i think they appreciated you know the way that i tell stories it's very much like you know you're telling a story to a friend right you're not Mm. being robotic um you're being more approachable in that sense and so yeah i think the storytelling aspect kind of remained the same of course um going from a local newsroom to a global newsroom you're Talking about different issues, right? Yeah, we go from like gun shootings in Northeast DC to like talking about the G20. So that was like that was, that that was there was a difference there.
0: That's I, I think that that's so unique from a an identity perspective because for any Asian American person who's gone back, like I don't know how they know, but they know we're not <laughs> from there, and <laughs> we we dress differently, we smell differently. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. They say but eye contact. They say the way that we make eye contact is a very telling sign that we're not a native.
0: Oh, interesting. There. Like we just yeah. stare because we're we're like just brash Americans like
1: Yeah, basically like when you when you grow up in America, you know, eye contact is important, right? Like when you talk to someone, make eye contact with them, acknowledge their existence. Yeah. But in Korea, I guess if you make too much of a strong eye contact, it can be seen as being rude,
0: disrespectful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, you, you talk about sort of the um, stereotypical Korean news anchor. They, um, again, it's a stereotype, but they, they they expect you to fit a certain look, right? Like this is how they also expected stewardesses or flight attendants to look 30 years ago, where you need to be of a certain height and a certain, you know, uh, you, you just want you to fit a mold, basically. Um, and so when you don't, and most Americans aren't, um, then like, what, what do you do? You just assume that they're not from there, um, mm-hmm. I guess. What, what, what was some of the, the most memorable stories that you've told? And what do you think about the fact that you not being from there made that story better? Because you brought in a global perspective that maybe some of the other mm-hmm. anchors and producers certainly didn't have. English, yes, they can learn English anywhere, but you had a global perspective having been a Korean American person, having worked in DC prior.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because I remember now the newsroom there, they really appreciated my story ideas because they did see a different perspective, right? So as not only as a foreigner, but as a Korean American. Um, so one story that actually stands out is um, every year during like, the Lunar New Year holiday season, Korea has a lot of like, different gifts that are available, um, but these gifts are, you wouldn't say like it's like a typical like gift basket that you see in America with like nice treats, you know, like luxurious jams or cheeses, right? But in Korea, it's more like the practical things. So you'll see like a gift set of like this huge box of shampoo, conditioner, soap, mm. or like this big box of like spam, right? Like Ooh, little That's of Spam, it. Yep. big can of Spam, and then Spam oil, right? <laughs> and then it comes with an extra like Spam tote bag with a Spam, uh, spam branding on it. Um, so I thought that was like hilarious because in the U.S., like Spam is not very, you know, you wouldn't really give your neighbor a Spam. It's not a
0: delicacy. Box, right. right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, that was like a very, you know, I thought it was hilarious and very amusing <sighs> And it's funny because when I talk to expats in Korea, that's one thing that they also mentioned, too. They noticed, too. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, you know, but it's very practical. And everyone wants spam.
0: Look, I I think to give context, I I remember. So spam made its way into Korea through the American army. And like most American products, they were imported through the American bases and then... You, some people might find this fascinating or hilarious. There was a black market of American products that made their way out of military bases. And there were people in between who made a lot of money selling these American delicacies at ridiculously high prices. So mm-hmm. I still remember growing up in Korea, you'd walk through the Korean market and there'd be this one stand that would be, it would it was called the import stand, right? Like, or the foreign stand. And there'd be all this stuff that like, but there weren't shelves of them. There were just like one of this or two of those because <laughs> it's whatever came in the APO box, right? And they just, or they bought it at the PX and they just, you know, happened to smuggle it out of the, the base. And, and yet spam is one of these things that I think it's, it's a remnant of the Korean War of American mm-hmm. culture that still is mm-hmm. there. But, you know, it's, yeah, culturally, you have to understand like sort of right. the, the context of, of, of that to appreciate right. spam. And, and that's why if you talk to a lot of Korean Americans, like. We love spam. We put spam in everything. <laughs> it and, makes everything uh, taste better.
1: No, I'm glad does. you pointed out the um, contextual part because, yeah, with, if like an American sees it, they're like, why would you give someone like cheap meat, <laughs> right? But then right. if you look at the history of Korea, like spam used to be, it, it is a delicacy, right? It was an yeah. American brand. Rare thing, yep. Rare thing. And there were knockoffs. And yeah. spam knockoffs don't taste good. Right. Don't taste the same.
0: Yep. Agreed. <laughs> That's so cool. What, what prompted your move back? And, and what were the, you know, did you, so you, you were there. Did, yeah. Tell us about how, what made you move back to the States and continue on your storytelling journey here.
1: Yeah. So I love my experience in Korea. Um, one of the big motivators of me going to Korea was to kind of get back into my, you know, learn about my roots. Be better at the language. And I thought it was just a great opportunity to live abroad while you're in your 20s and to, you know, travel and to, um, you know, tell a different set of stories than what I would tell here in America. Mm. And being in Korea gave me a lot of opportunities to travel all around the country domestically and abroad. So, you know, my crew always made fun of me that every time I went on a story, you're like a tourist, right? Because everything is still new and fascinating to me, even though, you know, I am Korean American and I would take pictures of everything. But, you know, after about like four years in Korea, um, you know, I felt like I still had, you know, roots in America. My family was all here. And so long-term wise, I wanted to be closer to my friends and family in America. And I also wanted to also, I guess, you know, excel in my career. And to do that, I felt like I needed to experience other newsrooms outside of Korea. And so I came back to the U.S. in 2015. And um, I freelanced for, I was a contractor uh, producer at the World Bank um, Mm. making um, documentaries and in-house educational pieces. And that too was, you know, it was, It was a blessing because um, I was able to use my experiences in Korea um, for uh, the pieces and they actually wanted someone who had the Asian perspective because we did a piece on like Korea's economic um, revolution and um, things like that. And they really appreciated someone who understood both cultures and both languages. Um, And so, yeah, so they reached out to me. So I worked for them for about six months. And then um, that job actually led me to my current job at CGTN America um, because a producer that I was working with at the World Bank met with someone who was at CGTN America, and they were saying that they needed someone with international experience and preferably Mm -hmm. someone with knowledge of Asia to come in and work for them. Perfect. Um, Yeah, perfect. So... (laughs) And actually, when I first joined c America, there were only, like, one other Asian American person. Um, And everyone else was from, like, everywhere else, like from France and from the UK. Um, And so, yeah, I really liked that they appreciated my Asian American perspective. And it seemed like a long way coming, right, from my first newsroom job (laughs) to my current job right now. So, yeah.
0: That's dope. And so one of the coolest things that you've gotten to do, at least I, I don't have the full breadth of what you've done at CGTN, but at least the coolest thing that I think that you've done is that you, you produced and hosted a documentary series called Asian and American that aired earlier this year. And so you've had a chance to sit down and, um, you know, during the good old days of when you could actually fly in and meet somebody and have face-to-face conversations, you, you got to meet the likes of Edward Lee, uh, the Master Chef finalist, Jeremy Lin, who we all know, uh, Mei Shu, Philip Wang of Wang Fu Productions, Tim Wang, and Marine Fan. Really household names that are just badasses in our community. Share with us about that experience and tell us what you learned about your own identity and the power of our voice uh, what, going through that experience.
1: Yeah, so this was, it was a work project as much as it was like a personal pet project. And it's something mm-hmm. that I, was thinking about for a couple of years, actually, I wanted to do, um, have something where, you know, I collect all the Asian American voices. And I think that's what you're doing right now, Jerry, which is great. Um, But a couple of years back, I think right when I moved back to the United States, I realized that that uh, voice was still missing. There weren't as many like platforms or um, like areas where I can go to and just get like a collection of, Asian American voices and mm-hmm. I really wanted that because I did feel like you know for myself too growing up I didn't have a role model that looked like who looked like me and right. the one person that I did have was Lisa Ling and it was yep. because she was on The View and you know I would come home from school after school I'd turn on the tv and I see her and I'm like oh she looks like me and I'm like yeah. oh this is something that's very possible for me to do like I can be like yes. her be on like a primetime. Daytime talk show and be respected, and people listen to me, people appreciate my opinions. But it's hard to actually see a possibility of where you can go if you don't see someone who looks like you're doing it. And so um, I just had this, you know, desire to collect the voices or to actually maybe like even like come up with like a roster, or like a list of Asian Americans in like different fields so that people can have like a reference point if they want to like talk to someone in this field or that field um but because you know my background is in media i thought like a cool you know visually you know aesthetically pleasing piece would be um very fun to do and i actually the thing is like i was nervous about it because i didn't know if the interest would be there yeah um And I think that has changed in the last, like, few years. But even back in, like, 2015, I was like, am I making myself too Asian if I just focus on, like, Asian people, right? And, like, how would people see me? And, like, would they just pigeonhole me as, like, the Asian girl who only does, like, Asian Mm -hmm. things, right? And I didn't want to be like that either, right? But then now, you know, I don't mind as much. But those are the thoughts that I had. But I remember talking to different Asian American leaders about this idea. And they were like, Connie, I do see like a vacuum. Like we don't have this space where we can just go and like read about or learn about different Asian Americans. And with the encouragement of, you know, different people, um, I started to plan like a series type of thing. And I didn't, I wasn't at a network at that point. I was, you know, contractor for the World Bank. Um, but I was thinking about, like, pitching it to someone or somewhere or even, like, starting it online by myself, which seemed very daunting at that point. But um, I already had, like, the whole, like, plan laid out. And then I, you know, happened to get a job at CGTN America and Network. And so after about a year there, I, you know, I was thinking about, like, would they even like this idea? Like, but then I already had the pitch, Right. And so I pitched it to them and the bosses really liked it. And they thought that this was something that can make their network stand out um, Mm. out of the other global uh, networks. And so I was, I was very thankful, but I was also surprised and people around me were also surprised too. My colleagues were surprised that, um, that they were going to put in all this money and, uh, devote like a whole team to work on this series about Asian Americans. Um, yeah. Cause I think my network too, they try to like not be too Asian centric. Um, if you know what I mean? Like they, because it's, you know, CGTN, you know, they wanted to stand out as more of a global newsroom rather than like an Asian newsroom. But I think they did, um, appreciated the different voices and they also wanted to highlight these people and so yeah the pitch went through they gave us a green light and then um, yeah I had the great opportunity to meet so many different people across different industries and really get to hear their you know origin story and their journey to um, how they became who they are today and a lot of them, I made sure that they were people who really appreciated their ethnic heritage right. and they're proud of being Asian-American. And that was important to me, too. And I wanted to relay that message um, with each of the people that I met.
0: You bring up a fascinating point, which is something that I thought about when you mentioned Lisa. There's, We, we always talk about representation visually, but it's not enough because we all know a crappy Asian person who is very public, but doesn't do anything to elevate our voices. And sometimes unfortunately it does things at the detriment of our own community. Lisa is not one of those people, neither are anybody else's that you mentioned. And then that's where I think is really fascinating to talk to these people, not only about their Asian American experience, but what does that mean in the context of other people that might be looking up to them to help them find their own identity and to find community and feeling less alone because in our own way, regardless of whether you grew up in Chicago or L.A. or Minnesota, like there have been times where we all felt out of place and, and felt like we didn't belong here. But I think speaking to those people specifically, and you mentioned the appetite for something like this has changed in the last few years. I'd argue that the appetite for this stuff has changed in the last six months. Mm. The power that we are seeing in the Asian-American storytelling community of people finally saying, yes, it is our time and nobody's going to tell me not to. Um, you know, podcasting platform has played a critical role in that because we don't need, literally don't need anybody's permission to start recording. Mm-hmm. The only permission that we don't give ourselves is is us, ourselves. You know, it's amazing. And I'm really excited to see where all this goes, because finally, and maybe this is the silver lining that we as a community needed when we were, you know, the victims of mass amounts of racism and anti-Asian Everything in the earlier part of this year and finally realized that news networks, government officials, um, police don't take us seriously enough to stand up for ourselves and tell, tell our stories. We look to here on the West Coast, I, I call them heroes. There are people like Dion Lim who are staring, like going out of our way to make sure that our stories are being heard. Mm-hmm. because she can and because she understands contextually and culturally why it's so important that we do so but at some point all of our ability to share our stories in the most, uh, most authentic way can only exist in a place where we can do that without fear of judgment or you know questioning of why is that important And so I I hope we can get to that place. I know so many people still um, on the creator side. And and, I mean, you saw this with YouTube when you talked to, and you know, with with Philip, right? And it's like his generation of people. Like, why were all the biggest YouTubers in the early 2000s Asian? Very simple. Because nobody else was giving them money to make stuff. Right? Like, why can't we make stupid, funny, comedian stuff? Nobody else was giving us money. Right. Like mm-hmm. none of the studios, none of the new digital platforms were signing on Asian American talent because they did not see us in that role. And mm-hmm. so they said, cool. All the musicians, the David Choy's, the AJ Raphael's of the world, they said, F it, we're going to go on YouTube and democratize mm-hmm. us. And they won um, and they're right. still winning. And, and I think it's going to continue to happen because, you know, earlier on, you mentioned the word minority, like we're not, we're four out of mm-hmm. seven billion people. That's more than 50%. And there's probably a $2 those that actually speak English. So our market is great. Our stories yeah, are great. And
1: we're the fastest growing um, minority group in the United yes. States. So, you know, whether you like it or not, right. we're going to be a force to be reckoned with. So, yeah. you know, I think every industry has to kind of open their eyes to that.
0: I, I kind of like the fact that we're somewhat underdogs in the media space because it makes it really fun to operate in a space where nobody's really giving you any, you know, not not a chance per se, but you know, it's like we know what the data says. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, you know, if you if you've never gotten geeked out over our community's data, go to aapidata.com and spend hours just pouring over like this is cool stuff, right? But there is power in our story. Uh, in addition to us being the fastest growing group, are we not the most educated? Do we not have the highest amounts of disposable income and just the ability to influence markets and spending and different businesses? And yet you walk into any marketing agency and you go to the multicultural group. They're not talking about us, which is fine. We We want to create our own ecosystem where we support our own business owners, where we support our own entrepreneurs, you know, and really not be seen as a hack or a way for people to achieve their other agenda. Um, We've heard that a lot. Asian Americans being in the swing vote this year, you know, um, especially in states like Georgia. That's cool. But like whose agenda are we trying to accomplish by us helping to win? You know, it's not easy, obviously, in politics in America. It's it's a little bit binary, unfortunately. But, you know, how, how do we get to a point where it's not a big deal that you produce a documentary interviewing other Asian Americans? Like that being news while cool is something that we hope isn't news in, you know, 10, 20 years or even sooner Mm -hmm. if we continue to do what we do, because it's just a, you know, they're just American stories, you know, earlier this year too, another great documentary um, that was produced uh, by another former guest of ours, Renee Tajima Pena, Asian Americans Mm -hmm. on PBS.
1: PBS. Yeah.
0: Like we don't learn that stuff in high school. Like that happened. And so, again, this goes back to who's writing the textbooks, who's authorizing the content, who's buying the books, who's working at these local school districts. Not a whole lot of people that look like me and you. And so either we can fix the system. Um, I heard this recently, which is really impactful for me. We can change the environment. Or we can change the environment. Right. So either go into the system and try to fix what you think is broken or just go into a different environment where you can thrive without the rules and the expectations of the system. And I think certainly as, as a father of two now, like I think about what do I want to teach my kids? What do I want them to listen to and see and read? And I bet you if I read my elementary school and junior high school textbooks now, like I'd get angry because it probably makes a small group of people look really awesome And it probably silences a whole lot of other people whose stories still deserve to be told today. And so I, Connie, I I appreciate you so much for what you do, uh, what you've done and what you will continue to do in in sharing our stories. Um, You have the distinct, you know, honor of having been one of the very few people who've told um, Asian and Asian American stories, both here and in Asia. And it's very, very cool. And without naming them, Uh, The mutual friends that we keep in between are amazing, amazing human beings. And Mm -hmm. just having been observing the content and the engagement that you uh, put out on LinkedIn, which is where we met. Mm -hmm. So, so, so excited to see um, how you will continue to uh, change the narrative of Asian American storytelling and change the world. So deepest gratitude. Um, Share with us where people can go. You are so welcome. I, you know. This is, I think, um, the thing that brings me the most joy is that we want to highlight. I just came into the game this year in telling Asian American stories, right, publicly, like people like you and people like Renee and other people been doing it for years. But I know also know for a fact that you guys don't get a lot of interview requests to share your own stories, right? You're the storytellers. And I want to get to a point where you are the household name that Renee is and that Jessica is because those stories matter, right? Like for every one of the Lisa's of the world and the Connie Chung's of the world, how many are there that are behind the cameras and, you know, in these production rooms Mm -hmm. that have been desperately changing the narrative of our stories in Mm -hmm. America for decades. Let's celebrate them too, because it's not just the honor talent. It's not just the household names that we should celebrate. Yes. They paved the way, but it's, you know, we all know that the ecosystem is far greater than that.
1: Yeah. They matter just as much sometimes.
0: (laughs) Of course. Where can people watch Asian and American online?
1: Yeah, so there is a website dedicated um, website, part of CGTNAmerica.com. Mm. And there's a separate website. If you just search Asian and American CGTN or Asian and American Connie, um, that should pop up on Google. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think my name is Connie J. Lee. Or I'm on Instagram at Constar C-O-N-N-S-T-A-R. I don't post a lot of work-related stuff, but I'm to be better at that.
0: <laughs> That's okay. Um, um, but
1: yeah, I do this for, you know, how Jerry, you started this podcast and you dedicated to your daughter. You know, I dedicate the stuff that I do for future generations and for them to have, you know, better role models and to have the opportunities that maybe like you and I didn't really have growing up. And I think, um, the future looks brighter than, that's exactly what we do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and I want to tell all the other, um, 20 something, 30 something year old friends out there who are listening, we have more power than you have ever imagined to create a world that you wish we had growing up. I'm going to say that again. You can create whatever you want. Think about the thing that you wish you had when you were in elementary school, junior high school, high school, even in college. Go create that thing. Because if it doesn't exist today, that means there is an Asian American kid somewhere in the world that desperately needs that um, to feel less alone, to have his or her or their story feel validated and to really make them believe that their stories matter. Because it does. Everybody's story matters. They just need to be told that. And we are trying to deal with both cultures, both countries, both societies telling us that our stories don't matter. And I am here to tell you and Connie is here to tell you and we will tell you until our faces turn blue that our stories do matter. And in fact, that you have every right and you should share it. Um, and when you do, bring others along as well. Um, and should have no shame in, in that. And, um, and then that's actually sort of how what, what guides what I spend my time on. It's this very simple question. Is there something that I wish I had 20 years ago? Yes. Does it exist today? No. Then make it because there's a probably a good chance that it's it's a problem worth solving. Connie, I'm going to put all the links where people can find you in the show notes so they can uh, find you easily. Um, And the, um, website where you can watch all the documentaries. Help us finish out the show in the way that we do here on Dear Asian Americans and write a letter to our audience and say something inspirational or whatever is on your mind to our audience by finishing the letter, Dear Asian Americans.
1: All right. Um dear Asian Americans, I hope you take pride in your Asian American identity. Um Your upbringing, your ethnic heritage make you special and unique. And your story, your perspective do matter and your story matters. And it can affect a lot of people for the better. So I hope you continue to shine your light um, in whatever community you are in. And I hope we can all build each other up and help each other across all industries.
0: And if you need somebody to nudge you, Get in touch with Connie, get in touch with me (laughs) um, or anybody. We need to do a better job as a community doing that, I think. You can always do a better job at a lot of different things, but, you know, we want to be a supportive group of people who encourage other people to start, whatever it is. You can overthink it to death, but, you know, um, I've never actually listened to my earlier stuff but I'm sure if we compare what is going out now in terms of how I feel about my interviewing style or my skill or my timing and everything, it's very different. But same thing with you, Connie, right? Like if you looked at a tape mm-hmm. from oh, DC Lord. 12 years ago, no. it's different. It's not bad. <laughs> no. It's just different. Right. But, but <laughs> exactly. it, it, it's where you were in life. And then you've had yeah. 12 years of experience, right? So, yeah. and then, so, you know, that's the other lesson. Like don't compare yourself to present day Connie, because she's been doing this for 12 mm-hmm. years. Start now yeah. and then be okay with wherever you start. Um, you know, the thing that us Asian American kids hate the most is when our parents compare ourselves to other kids, but Mm -hmm. we grew up to be adults and we end up comparing ourselves to other people that we've made up in our heads. And that doesn't matter. You're on your own journey. So Connie, thank you so much for what you've done. You continue to do. Please, if you have a little extra time during the holidays, as many of us do and not going out to see friends, check out Asian American. Um, let us know what your favorites are and please do connect with Connie if you want to learn about broadcasting, documentary-ing, documentary-making, or storytelling in general. Connie, thanks so much for making time today.
1: Thanks, Jerry, for having me. It was fun.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the show. Um, I think storytellers have a a unique way of um, seeing the world. Obviously, uh, people like Connie get to be in rooms and and talk to people that uh, most folks don't get to. And I think it informs the way that they see the world it informs the way they view different uh, things that are happening in the world and um I'm glad that she is who she is and she does what she does because it gives us a chance to tell stories from our perspective um because I think one of the reasons well one of the reasons why I started this show was to make sure that our perspective would be included as stories of global impact and of a historical consequence would be told for years to come so thank you connie for doing that um, if you found this interview with connie insightful i invite you to share it on social media um, share the episode through your links or just screen cap whatever you're listening to on your podcast player and throw it up on instagram uh, be sure to tag us wherever you can at the Asian americans or me personally at jerry j1 and send us an email to hello at the americans.com if you have any questions or thoughts or want to get connected to connie All of our contact information will be available to you in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. Episode 91 on our way to celebrating our 100th episode on the one-year anniversary of March 2nd. This is a double up. Uh, We skipped last week. Uh, So we are doing 91 today and 92 on Friday uh, with another great friend of mine. So looking forward to that. Thank you as much. Thank you as always for tuning in. And uh, until next time, thank you so much. Please be happy. Please be safe. Please be healthy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan of The Urban Americans, and I'll see you next time.